This is Here in Alabama. I'm Beth McGinnis. This series of episodes follows my journey getting to know the Porch Band of Creek Indians, the only federally recognized native tribe in Alabama. I've been visiting the Porch for a couple years now, along with my colleagues Stephen Potasik and Teresa Davidson, and some of our students. Even my family went with me to the annual powwow this past Thanksgiving. We've all found that the Porch Creek Indians have a great deal to teach us about living in this world we share. One of the strengths we've observed among the Porch is the intentional way they preserve their history and culture. What you carry on is what you are. That's the way Porch Museum Coordinator Brandy Chun put it. In the spring of 2022, and again in 2023, my colleagues and I went to the Southeastern Indian Festival, when the Porch teach local school children about Native culture and heritage. Both times, we visited the Porch Museum while we were there. Brandy Chun and her colleagues were exceedingly generous in welcoming us to the museum and giving us personal guided tours. They helped us along our way in understanding what it means to be Porch Creek Indian. To be on the tribal roll, you have to be at least one-fourth Porch, descended from the original families in the Porch area. What seems to matter most to Brandy and her colleagues, though, is how you carry on Porch Creek traditions. Southeastern tribes have their own distinct culture. There are no teepees, no headdresses, no buffaloes, but there are traditions that are uniquely Creek and uniquely Porch. There is pottery that is thousands of years old, with markers to identify the makers. Pottery doesn't break down in the soil of South Alabama. River cane baskets do break down, but some have been found in Russell Cave. Uniquely Creek traditions date back before the Indian Removal Act of 1830, when the U.S. government forcibly removed 22,000 Creeks from their ancestral homelands. A small group of families stayed in the Porch area in South Alabama. The traditions they carried forward make up a culture that is uniquely Porch. What you carry on is what you are. In 2022, my colleagues and I talked with Mr. Paul Bell, who is the Miko or ceremonial chief for the Porch. I asked Miko Paul about extended families in the Porch community. Many of them descended from that original group of families who were not removed. Well, it, it sounds like there are a lot of extended families that I, I've been exploring the YouTube channel, for example, of the mm-hmm. Cultural Center. And I, in some of those YouTube videos, I see a lot of the same names and it seems like there are a lot of extended families. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of Everybody, we always laugh and kid. We can't talk about each other because we might be kin to each other. You know? <laughs> All the Creek Indians, they done crossed and crossed or whatever. You know, <laughs> it's not that really that close. It's like, like you ain't like you marry your cousin or whatever. But then, you know, it, you you related to that person probably somehow. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> but that, that's. Uh, that's just one of the things that we kid each other about. Uh-huh. You can sure. marry your cousin. <laughs> <laughs> Miko Paul told us how Creek towns and settlements had traditionally been organized. You know, their town system was built. The closest thing I can think of, they had a central 
town that was called the head, you know, the head town or whatever. That's where the main chief lived. It'd be the, in English terms, it'd be like the president, be like the White House. Okay, all of you see in some of the old history books where you had a creek town here and a creek town there, and then each one of them towns had their own chief. And they would be like the governor of a state. Each one of them would operate like a state. Each one of them has their own rules or whatever. They have a centralized rule, but then within each tribal town, they have their own rules too. Might speak a different language. If most of the people in that village could be Shawnee, uh, could be Cherokee, in a lot of cases, you know, Cherokee, Shawnee, Uchi, you know, Choctaw villages within the Creek Nation because it was, that's the reason it was called a Creek con- uh, Confederacy because it was, it was a makeup of a bunch of different tribes. So you'd liable to go over here and the main people in this town was uh, Choctaw, so they, they spoke Choctaw. That was their language within their town. But they still knew Creek, too. Mm-hmm. Or if you go to this other one, and they spoke Shawnee most of the time in their village, but they knew Creek, you know, that way there. Mm-hmm. You know, and sometimes people, ones would travel one town to the other, you know, so it wasn't nothing for Creek's a long time ago, no four or five languages, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and they was talking about, you know, a lot of slaves that would escape and come to the, uh, live with the Creeks. Mm-hmm. You know, and the Creeks, a lot of times, would uh, give them land or put them on property to keep them away from their slaveholder. And uh, they learned, to, and they would move them around. If they seen trouble might be in that area, they'd move them around to protect them. Uh, but they learned a diff- bunch of different languages. So they started using them for interpreters. When they got to started building their trees and stuff, some of their interpreters was, was black because that slave, he was, he was learning because he was, he was trying to stay safe, you know. A lot of times they'll say, like one of my ancestors, he, uh, he lost his language and only speaks Creek, you know, because they had moved to that tribal town then with another tribal town after the wars took place. At that tribal town that I'm talking about was Tuskegee, you know, after the, like the university or whatever, but it's up toward Montgomery. Mm-hmm. But that was their mother tongue. That was considered what all the mothers taught their kids. From the 16th century onward, the Creek people intermingled with European settlers. The Scots seemed to get along with the Creeks better than some settlers did. Maybe it was because they had a few things in common. Because the Scots moved in, the Scottish people moved in here and lived with the Creeks so much longer than anybody else. Uh, some French come in here a little earlier, but Scottish in, come in and intermarried, stayed longer, or whatever, or stayed, uh, because the Scotch and the and the Creeks got along good. Uh, they both had clans. You know, Scottish has their own clan system, just like the Creeks have their own clan system. Uh, only uh, they believed in the little people, you know, like the leprechaun, you know. 
even something like that, you know. And the creeks had their own little people uh-huh. that was little mischief people, you know, almost like the Scotty. Mm-hmm. Talking about the leprechauns steal your gold or whatever, you know. They had little people that steal from you, you know. What and are, uh, what are the creek little people called? Um, Lobokski or whatever. They just made made a. Uh, Istio Bokski or something like that. Oh. You're not even supposed to say that. Oh, oh sorry. No, I, I'm, I'm not. They say you call them, make them come around oh, when you start oh, talking okay, about Okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but it basically means little people. Okay. <laughs> uh, but yeah, they come around called mischief as a. But, uh, you know, and a lot of times. Creeks a long time ago, their outfit would, something that they had on, most of the time it was necklace, their shell carving, like if you've seen that guy, that's the, uh, they would wear their clans, what clan they was around their neck or or have something, certain uh, color clothing, just like the Scottish. Hmm. You know, Scottish have their plaids for different uh, tribes. The creeks had different colors for each each clan. And then after they, the Seminoles moved to Oak, uh, Seminoles moved to Florida, they started off by just patching their clothes and then they slowly developed, you know, like this is considered like a wind symbol. And they had different symbols and they had some uh, clan symbols, you know, like a, that would mean a bear or an alligator, you know, or it would not even be a clan. They would have like, when modern times started coming in and these people live close to light poles, you know, they had developed a patchwork that looked like light poles going down the highway, so they knew that they lived over there. <laughs> but that's how they would know, and they'd automatically know their clan or whatever, because they like to have one thing up here and one thing down here. But that they would, they had ways of identifying their self. Mm-hmm. Or like uh, to they said that when he come from the Shawnee, he was wearing an eagle feather in his hair. And uh, as soon as he got to the Chickasaw line, he took that eagle feather out of his hair and put a crane feather. Uh, because if he got caught, even though he had kinfolks in Creek Nation, they would have killed him if he'd had that in his head hmm. because that's a sign of war. Uh, mm. And the white crane feather, that's a sign of peace. You, that's Creek's supposed to always wear like a crane feather, mm. a white crane feather. Mm. That's what they would wear unless they went to war as a tribe. Mm-hmm. Then they would wear hawks or, or eagle feathers or whatever. So, I mean, you could tell signs who somebody was time they got up to him. You pretty well knew, well, this, you know, he got to be a cousin. He could look at his shirt, you know, or look at that necklace, you know. From what Miko Paul was telling us, it sounded like the default mode for the Creek people was peace, signified by a white crane feather. We also heard a strong theme of hospitality in what Miko Paul said about how the Porch Creek Indians interact with one another. It even shows up in the Muscogee language. And the way the old ones would tell us, 
that when we say, like, yes, don't go to each other, uh, it wasn't just like, it's supposed to be used for how are you, mm-hmm. you know. But when they said it, they it, it was a different way of saying it. They was really wanting to know how you would. Oh, yes. Uh, because they were you know, real close-knit uh-huh. family. Miko Paul told us about how Creek towns were historically organized and how the Creeks intermingled with others. Throughout their history, hospitality has been a theme for the Creek people. And let's say this, you know, we try to help everybody in the will. We don't say, well, you know, he hasn't got any in him. We're not going to have any time to fool with him. Yeah. You know, we, we have people that's completely white that go through green corn, you know, with us. Or we have people that's, you know, completely black that go through our green corn sometimes. Green corn is the renewal ceremony the porch hold every year. And if they do that, do they... If they go through green corn, the ceremony, yeah. does that um, make them a part of your... If they go for four years here in Oklahoma, it's the same thing. Most of, most of, the, most of the dance grounds is going to be the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you go to four green corn, uh, you're considered a member. You're given a creek name. Your, your your voice is just as strong as somebody that's full blooded. Wow. Uh, because I mean that's you completely family then. Wow, that's really acting out that hospitality that uh-huh. you were telling yeah. me about. It was fascinating to me to hear how newcomers could be welcomed into the community even if they weren't native. You were telling me about the green corn. Um, you're telling me about this practice of welcoming people who are willing to participate in four green corn festivals and then they are welcomed and accepted and have a voice yeah it's just like people come and say well uh this person or they marry somebody that's you know white or black or or whatever and they want to come to their grounds or whatever and they bring them with them well maybe that partner or whatever wants to be part of the ground. And uh, so when we have green corn every year, that man, he would go through and take medicine with us and do everything we done. And uh, after four years, he's given, a, he's given a war name, a creek name, and he's considered, you know, adopted, you know, but more than adopted. He's got just as much authority as anybody else out there, really. Because he's a named person for that ground. He, he got say-so or whatever, uh, no matter what color he is, you know. I mean, that, that, that was a way that a lot of them, especially there's a few down in Florida, but they was completely uh, black grounds in Florida. A lot of slaves went to Florida and uh, started living with Seminoles. And uh, after a while, they... they had been with Seminole so long, they pretty well knew everything, you know, that they would know. And uh, they would start their own village. And it might be completely black village. And, uh, but they was doing all creek stuff, you know. And they had to, they, they was considered a town. Creek society is traditionally matrilineal. 
because their father's life was to be from another village. He didn't live with them. The mothers raised the children. Yeah, mothers had told say so over the children. The men didn't own nothing <laughs> except in his mother's village. He might own something in his mother's village, but he didn't own nothing within her village. Uh, the kids belonged to him. He couldn't even discipline his own kids. Uh, her 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 brothers was in charge of uh, discipline their kids. No, uh, the only thing he was supposed to do to kid was the kid supposed to see him when he bringing gifts to him, you know, or bringing uh, food to make sure his wife was taken care of him. You know, that was that was what his job was, and he lived there off and on, but that wasn't his main home. His main home was where his mama was from. Because they was, you know, we do our clan through mother's side of the family. So it don't make no difference, you know. You was following your mother's, what your mother did. And they some tried to do that. And they some tried to follow the men's side, you know. But the only thing that the men might have they might have had a name close to what their father's name was. But that's the only way they might know him or whatever. But the mother was responsible for that child. So I think, you know, that's, that's just the way they were, was raised or whatever till they got to a certain age. And then maybe later on, they might, their daddy might teach them something. But a lot of times their uncles had done taught them that. Yeah, it's like, the uh, closest thing I can think is like, uh, I go back to Sam Manack. Sam Manack was a self-described warrior of the Creek Nation. He was born in Tuskegee, Alabama, about 1781, and died in Mississippi in 1837. He had a lot of property, but lost it during the Creek War. The Alabama Department of Archives and History holds in its digital collections a deposition by Sam Manack in which Manack tells how Tecumseh gave a speech to rally the Creeks to war. Manack said, I was there for the space of three days, but every day whilst I was there, Tecumseh refused to deliver his talk. And on being requested to give it, he said that the sun had gone too far that day. The day after I came away, he delivered his talk. If you listened to the last episode of Here in Alabama, you may remember Miko Paul telling me and my colleagues how there were certain times for learning, certain times for dancing, certain times for ceremonies. It sounds like Tecumseh had a similar approach. He wouldn't give his speech if the time of day wasn't right. Do you remember the red sticks and the white sticks? Among Creeks in the early 1800s, the White Sticks tried to assimilate and keep peace with the settlers. The Red Sticks wanted to resist. Paul Bell told us how Sam Manack was a White Stick, but he married into a Red Stick family. Because the clans are matrilineal, Manack's son became a Red Stick. And he was Creek. And uh, he was wanted to be a white stick and he fought with Jackson. Okay, but his kids, I mean, his wife was William Weatherford's sister and William Weatherford was a red stick. So the kids was raised to be red stick. 
Because of the mother. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And even so, that they had to stop his son from killing him because he was going to kill him because he was like an enemy, you know? Wow. That's how serious it was to them, you know? Wow. <laughs> and then later on, after it was over, he had... He went to his father and tried to give him his life or whatever, you know, and saying he was sorry, you know, but at the time that was, he was following what, what he had brought up. You know, you do what your uncles are doing. In Creek society, the specific roles for women go far beyond raising the children. Miko Paul told us how preparations are made for the green corn ceremony. The ceremonial ground is closed at the end of the season. The winter time is more of a time for learning because that's when you're letting your grounds rest. You don't let's read your down. It's when you close your ground down for the year, uh, you letting it heal. We basically they say you letting it heal because uh, you know how I was telling you this morning that uh, the women had to go in there. When we start a new season, the women had to go in there and with their knife and and basically do like this, and they had to hack all the way around there a certain, and we had to sing a certain songs and uh, to get that, they clean our ground. The women had to clean our ground before we can go back in there to dance. So at the end of the year, when we close our uh, close it down. After that, we'll still get together and dance, or if nothing else, cook hot dogs, hamburgers, whatever, to be together. But then when we start again, we had to, uh, at Green Corn, we mainly gonna to, to really redo, new, uh, do our new year. That woman gonna have to clean that. They say that's because when we're dancing, we're clearing, uh, we're cleaning ourselves, because, you know, basically, you're leaving your burdens out there on the smoke. To take it up to heaven. But you're leaving all the bad stuff, and that's the reason the women have to, you know, come in and clean it at every year. The women, the first two women's toting like uh, them wooden knives, and what they're doing, they're hacking the bad stuff out of our ground or whatever and cleaning our ground. So, you know, that's another reason our women's so important. Uh, because if they didn't come in and clean our grounds, then we couldn't dance, basically. Mm-hmm. Cleansing is even important in the game of stickball. We learned about stickball from Brandy Chun and her colleagues at the Porch Museum. Stickball is unique to southeastern and Creek tribes. It's sometimes called the little brother of war. Historically, stickball was used to settle disputes. For example, two towns might have a hunting dispute, but not want full-out war. They would agree to settle the dispute through stickball. Traditionally, stickball was for men only. Now, it's a social game. Women can play too, but they don't get sticks. Now, rather than settling disputes, stickball is for happiness. Men and women can play together, and Creator can look down and see them being happy. In the last episode, you heard some of our conversation with Cherokee storyteller and national treasure Chuji Kingfisher. Mr. Kingfisher had several flutes around him. He also had some sticks. Listen to his description of stickball and how the people had to cleanse themselves afterwards. 
What are, what are the um, lacrosse looking sticks? Those are uh, those are what we call stick ball sticks. There you go, stick ball and, sticks. And yes. uh, now this is this is the grandpa. Uh -huh. That's that's the grandpa right there. Okay. And later on here here today they're going to be playing the game. Okay. But uh, in the southeast culture, uh, we have two two styles. Mm -hmm. We have the stick ball game, the social game, which is a man and woman game, which we throw at a target at the top of a pole, like the center in that field right there. Yeah. And uh, the women use their hands, the men use the sticks. Okay. We also have the older game, which is Ani Jordi, is what we call it. Uh, each tribe will have a different name for it. But it is the war game, and it is a man-on-man -man game, usually played on a 100-yard field, much like lacrosse, yeah. you know. Uh, of course, in our game, we don't have pads. We don't have we don't <laughs> yeah. have we don't have all those safety regulations, you know. Uh, very vicious game because a lot of times we were playing uh, township against township, you know, within our own tribe, uh -huh. as well as uh, uh, tribe against tribe. Yeah. Uh, one of the biggest one of the biggest uh, uh, games recorded in history uh, came from Ballfield, Georgia, which is uh, which was a battle between the Cherokees and the Creeks. For the northern part of Alabama and Georgia, and so uh, you can tell, you can tell how far down we are. Uh, we're in the southern part, and we're in Creek Country. Right. So right. you know, you you know who won that northern part of it. Uh, but it was a, uh, it was a seven-day battle. Wow. A seven-day battle. Wow. You know, and uh, it's recorded history. There's cave markings, or cave markings, uh, inside the caves where they were preparing for that ball game. Uh, there are. Uh, in our, in our Cherokee syllabary, there's writing on the inside talking about them preparing and what they were doing and, and this and that. So, so uh, those games are still played with. They're still played today uh, among our townships. Um, for us as Cherokee people, we were one of the only tribes that it was outlawed because uh, some of the some of the uh, people saw it and they called it barbaric. Mm. Yet here we were going to war with another country, uh, standing across from each other, literally shooting at each other, and following another line would stand up and shoot. Uh, if that's not barbaric, I don't right. know what is. Right. You know, uh, thousands of lives were lost in war. When we played our game of stickball, uh, lives were lost, yes, of course, because it was a very rough game. But it wasn't uh, thousands right. because we, because we, we, uh, didn't take life for granted. We understood that whether it was our enemies or whether it was us, life was very precious. Yeah. And so we wanted to preserve that, you know, and so that was a way of doing it and settling our grievances is going to battle that way. Uh, so that way, once we were finished, we went to water to wash off those bad feelings. Symbolically, mm -hmm. uh, we came out, no hard feelings. Hmm. You won, good job it wasn't one of those i'm going to get you back you know right, it wasn't right. one of those once it was done it was done and we went about and a lot of times uh there were a lot of after the ball game and after after we came out of the water and we we shook hands and there were a lot of intermarriages between our tribes you know so so it wasn't it wasn't uh, like i said it wasn't i'm going to get you back just because you beat me it wasn't one of those things that concept didn't come in until europeans brought that to us yep At the Porch Museum, Brandy Chun has told us how the Creek way of life revolved around corn and fire. Miko Paul told us how the ceremonial grounds are organized. The ground is square, and it is home to the fire. It's usually two kind of grounds in Oklahoma. 
there's an open ground and a closed ground. Okay, the old ground system that was set up, you had like three uh, three benches that sit around it, and you had like a like I had the Miko's bench right here. Your fire is right here. Okay, the next arbor is where usually your advisors and stuff like that. The next arbor is for the older people and the young people. They put kind of put the old people with the young people to try to teach them. Mm-hmm. And and, the, and then the one over here was like for uh, the warriors. But some grounds still do like that, and then they they called red grounds. So almost like a long time ago, the red sticks and the white sticks or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. In the white grounds, they have just they just have the Miko Arbor, then the Advisors Arbor, and the, where the old people and the young people sit, and the war they have the warriors with them in them. They leave that other arbor out. That's the way ours is, and that's called an open ground. It's a we we a white ground, uh, but it's a, that's leaving the arbors open. That means anybody that wants to can dance. Uh, them has got four arbors. A lot of them nowadays, you have to have the invitation or blood or, or something like that to go to them ground. In the last episode, Miko Paul told us how the songs and dances are prayers to the Creator. The smoke of the fire takes the prayers to the Creator, the breath maker. Birds do the same thing, especially the eagle who flies the highest. The dancers dress in bright colors for the same reason, to catch the creator's eye. And you said the smoke takes the prayers up yeah, to, to heaven. Mm-hmm. And you were telling me about the blaze of the fire and the bright colors, too. Yeah, the reason they dance around that in the middle, and most of the time you don't even really... Oh, well, you didn't talk about that in the middle, uh, really. But... They would dance around the, that in the middle. I told her, the smoke took your prayers as you was you dancing, you dancing counterclockwise, always counterclockwise, because that's the way the earth is running on this side. And uh, while you're doing, while you're singing the song, you're singing prayers, and that smoke's taking your prayers to heaven. And then your fire, sometimes if a good leader gets up, that fire go to dancing. It'll, it'll go or swirling or something like that and they always wear bright clothes if you're noticing a lot of times you see it a lot in powwow but uh even in creek stuff they'll wear bright clothes and they won't want the creator to see them this uh old way it, it was it was more or less the creator see them they wasn't doing it to be fancy you know or whatever They'd make sure to create a, you see I'm doing good? You see I'm doing good? I'm, I'm being strong. I'm out here dancing all night. <laughs> but that, that's the way, you know, that was their mindset. You know, everything was built around the creator. My colleague Stephen Potasic brought the conversation back to community. Part of Miko Paul's role is to help teach children the Porch Creek traditions so the children can carry those traditions on. Could you share to us a little bit about the importance of community, particularly as it relates to maybe today and how you go about maintaining community within the tribe? Sometimes the tribe don't agree with 
the traditional whatever side. But we um, we believe in you know treating every youngin just like that's your youngin or your child or whatever. I, I use a lot of old words. I'm old. Um, <laughs> uh, you treat every child just like it was your. Because you want that child to grow up, you want to give that child the best chance, you, you know. And it's just, it's like the old saying, you know, the village raises a child, and that's true. Ninety percent, no, I wouldn't say nothing. Uh, most of the time, but if that parent, parental unit, you know, whatever it may be or whatever, if that's not together, uh, helping that child, you know, community can't help to, but to a certain extent. It don't make no difference how close you are, you know. That kid's going to always look for somebody to look up to. And it's like uh, they say today, you know, you either raise your child or the street will raise your child, you know. Last few years is when we started the Boys and Girls Club and then we started a real daycare or whatever. But it's more like a setup, more like school or whatever. It's not like a babysitting thing. But uh, since we started it, I noticed a lot of difference in the little kids. This year is the first year we had a two-year-old program. And uh, you can go in. We went in there first day, and, you know, the kids wasn't even speaking English. They wasn't speaking nothing, you know. They, uh, <laughs> you know, they two-year-old, you know. Mm-hmm. But within two weeks, you know, it was, you know, this little girl, one of the girls that was that's, that's teaching, uh, she ran up to her and said, the Conops. And that, that was one of the little games that we played with them. And it means stop. <laughs> <laughs> and she had learned that word basically, and that's the first time we'd ever heard her, say her, uh, heard her say a word or anything. Mm-hmm. So they, they learning, you know, even at that age, you know, we thought that was that's incredible, you know, because we went into the program not knowing how to do a two-year-old program. Mm-hmm. But we had done three and four, you know. But that's a lot of difference between two and three, you know. Mm-hmm. They a lot of difference between three and four. Mm-hmm. I mean, it taking time, and you could tell the kids that parents spend a little time with them. You know, not only teaching them Creek or, or that most of the time they ain't going to teach them Creek. They'll, but you can tell the, the kids that's, you know, the mama loves them all the time or shows them more love or whatever, or she works all the time. You can really tell, you know, what they're missing and you're hoping that you can uh, get to them soon enough, you know, to kind of help them along, you know, because, I mean, that's your future right there, you know. I mean, I'm bad to be, I'm not a money person, you know. I could basically live in a tent and be satisfied, you know. <laughs> I'm not a worldly person or whatever. Uh, I'll spend all the money, <laughs> but, but I mean, as far as caring about money, I, you know, I don't, I don't really care about money. Uh, but I, I really enjoy fooling with them kids, you know. Anybody that's, any, you know, and when they want to learn, after they get a certain age, then they get a tendency to, yeah, yeah, just blow you off, you know. <laughs> Them little ten year old, you know, a ten year old blow you off like Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean them when you I had time in my life it, it, uh when I'm with them two and three and four year old, that, that's my uh, I, I, I would I would stay in there all and all all day. Uh 
spending time with them because they're eager to learn something or they want to play some games, you know, or just wanting you to conversate with them, t- tell them about Peppy Pig. If that, that. <laughs> yeah. All them kids want to know about Peppy Pig. Yeah. <laughs> but you're building some kind of you know, relationship, you know, and that's that's what it's about, you know. And I think if the country would kind of do that, you know, and you could just like with the kids that come through here from the different school, you could tell the good teachers from the bad teachers just by how the students act. You would see a bad kid with this bunch, you know, or a bad or a bad kid, or so they say, or whatever. But I've seen bad kids. We we've had three year olds, you know, that they consider, oh, this is a bad young one right here, but. Within two or three weeks, you're spending time with him. You know, he he's, he's it's because he's bored. Most of the time, it's because he's smarter than the rest of them. He just done, he done got bored about it. <laughs> I mean, we had, like in 3K this year, we had three or four that had all, that with autism. And when you went in there, they just real... I mean, they had the head down or he had to sit right up under the teacher or whatever. And sure, it didn't take long, and they was up playing with the young ones. You couldn't have told, you know, we didn't put them in a box. If we told one to do it, we told the other, and it wasn't. The lady that does baskets had started trying to, they make, um, it's like a fake honeysuckle basket mm-hmm. that you can just buy commercial I mean mm-hmm. uh, uh, material mm-hmm. it's like straw or whatever length of straw or whatever mm-hmm. and they'll get that and they'll try to start they'll st- shape it out the bottom of it and try to get them to weave just a little bit according to it and, and the teacher uh, the one that's teaching it like do 90% of it but let the kids you know and if, they, if they're too young mm-hmm. then if they don't do nothing else they let them paint it <laughs> yeah. You know, it gets them kind of interested, and then you work from there, you know. Yeah. Maybe when they get 10 years old, you'll let them do a little more or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, if you like like me, uh, it's like pine needle baskets. I was I was telling, I, I was a lady from Alabama, Cushada, was teaching us how to do pine needle baskets the way they do them. And I had worked for like two weeks on mine, and it looked like a coaster. <laughs> I mean, that's about how big it was. And it, wow. it was still yeah. flat. It was, it was flat like a coaster. And this little young boy, he couldn't have been over 13 years old. And he was just visiting his aunt. He come to class with her one night because she didn't have nowhere for her and stuff. He sat in there and almost made a complete basket. And I'm thinking... <laughs> Yeah, you know, I done sat and just sweated and had to take it out and redo it. But the, that's his gift, you know. Yeah. People just gifted to do different things. Mm-hmm. But we try to teach, you know, we try to teach them according to what uh, Joey and him. He start the guy that cooked the corn soup over. Mm-hmm. He'll he'll have classes where he's starting to try to teach basket. If they can't do nothing else, the little kids they'll take. Uh, cardboard and cut it out in strips and let the let the real young ones try to put together a basket or make a little mat out of it mm-hmm. you know and then color it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or they'll you know maybe 
Let me think of something else. I might give them uh, like a piece of cloth and have it fixed to where they can use like a needle that ain't real sharp and use a big knit and let, and let them like they're sewing, learn, you know, learn them how to sew and yeah, stuff. Yeah. But it's kind of like a process to try to bring them up, you know, skills that were been lost or whatever, you know. Because it's like anything else, you know, no matter tribe or, or a group of people, you know, they stuff lost all the time, you know, that we don't realize. Mm-hmm. Well, I suppose that's true for anyone. Yeah. Things are going to change. Mm-hmm. And like the 4K this year, uh, they took, they would take little things down there uh, and let them grow seeds and let them see how to hide uh no, I can't remember. Year before last, they used tomato plants. Then every year they use some some kind of little plant mm-hmm. that'll grow from the seed and let the kid take it home and then water it and take care of it and then bring it back, you know, and see who's let their plant glow and trying to learn them how to take care of stuff like that, you know. Yeah. It gets interested, you know, in stuff like that. Yeah. But that, you know, that, that shouldn't be just an Indian thing. That should be everything, you know. Right. Because yeah. later on, we might be all have to have a garden all the time. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of families in the communities that still have gardens. Mm-hmm. And then we have like a community garden that's set up. And uh, basically anybody that lives in the area can come and get out of that garden. Mm-hmm. Uh, were they tribal member or not. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. You know, so that's, that's another way of taking care of the community, too. It sounded like Miko Paul's current work with children grew out of his career in the state parks and forestry service. I mean, I, when I worked, I retired from the state. Uh, I worked with the state for like 20-something years. I worked state for state parks, and then when state parks quit down the, t- the place I was working at, forestry took it over, and I worked for forestry until I could retire. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we was all the time take kids out, you know, in the woods, and it wasn't about being Indian. It wasn't about nothing. You you supposed to teach your kids, you know. We take the kids out there and show them, you know, this is the pine tree. This is why you want to raise this pine tree instead of that pine tree. You see how that pine tree's dying, you know. Or you, you see why that one looks so much better? It's because that's a that's a long leaf pine, and then show them the needles or whatever, you know, and show them why. You know, a lot of times when they're in the classroom, they tell them how to do math, but they don't really show them how you need that, you know? Yeah. yeah. The kid grow up, well, <laughs> we don't need that job. <laughs> I've, I've yeah. heard that. Yes. <laughs> Happens in college, too. Yeah, that's uh-huh. right. yes, it does. Yeah, I know I thought it too. But. <laughs> but most of it's general stuff that we know we should know or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it, you know, it gets hard to not get caught up in daily life, you know. Mm-hmm. Miko Paul's work with children is at the heart of his purpose in life. But that, that's the main thing is is to let them know that. There's a creator up there, and uh, he's watching over you, you know, and you're supposed to do what's right. Mm-hmm. And if 
If you don't, you have consequences, not only later, but you have consequences now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you think you can go out and party all weekend, you know, and then come back to the ground and everything be all right. Well, they don't work like that, you know. Something's going to hit you, you know, and way creeks believe, uh, if a bad stuff, it keeps coming in your grounds, it don't go to necessarily the person that's doing it. Huh. It goes to the weakest person in your family. Huh. So that makes it worse, you know. You like be going out and getting drunk all night and all that. But if your mother's sick or whatever, and she's she doing everything just right, but she's sick, she's weak, considered the weakest one. Uh, that you like to cause her more sickness by doing that. Mm. Mm. I mean, I just little stuff like that. What you want them to instill in them that you you affect everybody as a whole. Okay. Where it be sickness, spiritual sickness, or or even COVID or whatever, you know, you're affecting everything around you. Mm-hmm. So not only a sense of natural natural consequences, but also maybe even like a karmic, you know, like sowing what you reap. Uh-huh. Yeah, and a long time ago, there was, you know, they always say creeks didn't have no prisons. You know, mm-hmm. they had no jail. Every crime, no matter what you did, you know, you was either banished or killed. You know, that was mm-hmm. too punishment. Okay, if if you kill somebody who, that was from another clan, you could take off and run and leave, and nobody would, you know. But that person, family that, that you kill somebody out of, could come and kill some of your family and without consequences. Mm. Wow. So you could run, but maybe they'd say, well, you just run on. We ain't going to run you. We'll just go over here and kill your brother. And that's the end of it. Mm. Wow. You know, so that cuts down on crime, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Because you don't know who they're coming back and kill. Yeah. So that, you know, you'll hear them talk about, yeah, there wasn't no jail back then. Well, hey. If it been, if they do some of that now, they'll have to cut on something that's happening now. So you learned to, that, that was another way you took care of your family, you know. You didn't want to mess up, but you was hoping they would banish you, you know. It was just, but if you killed somebody, it was automatic. You were going to die or, or either some of your family was going to die. Mm-hmm. Miko Paul explained that one reason to learn all the subtle meanings of language is to keep from offending or hurting someone. You're responsible to one another. But they was thinking about what they were saying. Mm-hmm. And it was very important to them because they would, it always goes back to not offending nobody. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would always say it's better to kill somebody than to offend them because it embarrasses yourself. It embarrasses your tribe and it embarrasses yourself. If you wanted your, if a uh, long time ago, if I really wanted like my boss lady and all of them to just be so mad with me and be about ready to kill me, if I if I just, y'all to come up today and I said, y'all said, yeah, how y'all doing? And if I'd have been mean, I said, I ain't got time to fool with y'all. You know, I'm busy, man. Today, I, 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 I just can't do that. 
but they'd have been over there like, oh. it would have just been a you know an insult. You know, you not only made yourself look bad, you made them look bad. You know, and that, that was just as bad as I might as well have killed y'all. You know. Okay. <laughs> I mean, they just didn't believe like that. And a lot of times, when the white people or black people would come and live, to come to the village, they would when they assigned their family, they would sign them to a clan, and that clan job would take care of. Them. You know, they could help the clan or uh, help that clan, but you know, they weren't considered part of that clan. Uh, but they knew the, all the people in the village knew that the, this clan was taking care of them. Uh, then they could stay long as they want to, even as irritating as they want to be, you know. They may have be thinking, God, I hope these people leave, you know. <laughs> I just sat here and heard that stuff that I don't want to hear it no more. Uh, but the only the way that they might could get rid of them, if they just totally got tired of them, was uh, through the cooking, you know? Oh. <laughs> Maybe add a little bit of this to mess their stomach up or something like that. You know, that was, that was on the borderline of being rude, you know? <laughs> but that's about the only thing they could do. You don't make them a little bit sick and they thinking, I can't eat no more, so and so. They just killing me over here. Passive <laughs> <Massive> aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> well, we certainly don't want to extend overextend ourselves to you you've been very generous yes thank you so much uh, i'm glad to share i mean that's i look at it as part of my purpose you know or whatever and, and the more people share it don't make no difference from culture to culture the more you can share you know it's hard to hate somebody if you share it with them right so, you know true. no matter what your religion or whatever you might not believe like them yeah, but you you showing them respect to what they do. Uh, you you're helping yourself, but you're helping them. You saying well, you you giving them a second thinking. You know, like, well, you know, all all of them people ain't all that bad. I recently read Sebastian Younger's 2016 book Tribe on homecoming and belonging. Younger zeroes in on the human instinct to form deep connections in small groups that are responsible to and for one another. Deep community connections make people demonstrably healthier and happier. They may even be essential to what it means to be human. One common misconception about Native people is that they're all gone, or if they're not all gone, they're not modern. From what I've seen, the Porch Creek Indians are definitely here, and they're just as modern as anyone else I know. To ask whether they're modern or not is missing the point, though. My colleagues and I went to the porch with what I think is a far better question. What can they teach us? There are at least two ways I would like to be more like the porch, in their strong sense of community and in their hospitality to others. I've had a taste of both through churches I've been part of, and there's nothing better in life. Stephen and Teresa and I reflected on these themes one afternoon after coming back to Birmingham. Yeah, that was one of the first things that you said, Stephen. That sense of community really stood out to you about um, our visit. And I, it did to me, too. I, 
I think one of the main themes that I took away from our conversation with Miko Paul was this, this value of hospitality that permeates their community. And um, it's, it's not only this strong sense of community but, um, and organization, but it's also this welcoming attitude towards outsiders. He was saying, you know, if somebody's willing to go through four green corn festivals four years in a row with them and do everything that that entails and participate, then they can become a fully-fledged member. And he was saying, we, we see no difference between that person and somebody who was born into the tribe which is really amazing to me and, yeah, beautiful. The, the sort of inherent diversity and inclusion that that allows for them to have with this sort of permeable wall culturally is a really beautiful thing, I think. Yeah, and it contrasts with that othering that we often tend to do. Teresa, you mentioned that. It's, it's just the opposite attitude, isn't it? That we um, we often look at a group like that and we tend to draw lines between us and they're looking at people on the outside and erasing those lines, which is amazing. That's really powerful and it's really generous. And I think I got a lot of sense of generosity when we were down there, right? Like, um, like Miko Paul, you know, just sitting down and, and and seemingly ready to talk with us for, you know, an indefinite period of time. And then when we walked into the museum and and them saying, hey, come on in, you know, even though they seem to be having kind of a like a mini conference or something um, and then offering us a personalized tour, like there was just a lot of, of generosity. And and um, and I think there's a kind of careful line that we have to walk to make sure that we're we're not exoticizing or otherizing. And you know what I mean? Um, because we are so curious. I mean, we're, we're um, you know, scholars and um, academics and, and we're like, hey, you know, I want to learn some more stuff, but, but recognize, yeah, they're, they're, they're human beings, you yeah. know? Yeah. When I f- first started these, the courses in my certificate program. Teresa recently completed a graduate certification in Native American studies at Montana State University. So I'm a sociologist, and we tend to focus on marginalized populations, you know, and rightly so, because, you know, they're the ones who tend to be more voiceless and and disempowered oftentimes and things like that, marginalized. Um, But from a sociological perspective, I think I and other sociologists are guilty of, in some ways, kind of further marginalizing and further otherizing um, racial and ethnic groups, in, sometimes in the way we study them, and we don't mean to do that. And all of that is to say what I learned in my program is how incredibly um, empowered and oftentimes incredibly organized Native people are. And I think we saw that, like when you're talking about what they're able to do with um, the casino funds and, and just everything that they're able to do in their community. Like we talked to um, Miko about the the pre-K program and things like that. I mean, they're they're taking care of business. Yeah, they are. You know, and and they have a lot to teach us and others about how to um, to get things done and to take care of each other in their community. Going back to that idea too, uh, Miko Paul sharing. I think at one point we asked him, "What what do you feel like your central role is as Miko?" and and him kind of sharing that he felt this sort of um, weight to to guide the younger generation was really cool. And again, it goes back to that idea that I was sharing earlier of 
there's this sense of, uh, you know, that it takes a village to raise a child and they're, they're really doing it, at least in that community. And, uh, I'm, I'm envious of that to some extent. Same. Teresa mentioned the tendency scholars can have to romanticize people we learn about. I confess, I feel a bit like a fangirl around the Porch Creek Indians lately. We're trying hard, though, to be with the porch and learn alongside them instead of doing research on them, to get to know them as people rather than studying them as research subjects. The strong, interdependent community that I've come to appreciate among the porch has been tested, though. That leads to the harder part of their story. In our conversations, the Porch Creek Indians told us about some of the generational trauma that is also part of their history. We'll listen to those stories in the next episode. I'm Beth McGinnis, and this is Here in Alabama. Here in Alabama.